power on. The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Tech Podcast feed. What is a rapidly disappearing mode of technology, um, which in a way we were forgetting ever existed. Um, and I would call those poetic technologies. You know, uh, Lewis Mumford made the famous argument that most machines are really based, well, the very first machines were made of people. That bureaucratic rational techniques, you know, for example, they use production line approaches to um, build the pyramids. Um, and that later, you know, they had almost no technology. I mean, the lever, they didn't have a wheel, they had a couple things, pulleys maybe. Um, and that you know, complex technology takes social relations, uh, bureaucratic social relations, and simply internalizes them physically. Uh, so you have this sort of rational bureaucratic approach, both to physical reality, um, through mechanics, and to people. And for most of human history, it's basically used to realize somebody's imaginative crazy dream. This is what I call it, poetic technologies. And they might be horrible dreams. They usually are, actually. Um, somebody's megalomaniacal concept of um, pyramids, building railroads across continents, going to the moon, whatever it might be. Um, so that's what I would call a poetic technology, when you use sort of rational bureaucratic uh, approaches to realize some imaginative vision. Um, and, um, you know, the Soviet, like, let's launch hundreds and hundreds of solar-powered satellites and beam the energy down, you know, that kind of thing was like the sort of last gasp of, the techno uh, of poetic technologies. Their defeat has led to the dominance of a complete inversion. What we now have are what I would call uh, bureaucratic technologies, and the Internet is a perfect example. But everybody says, well, we still have creativity. We have the Internet. It's very creative. Um, you know, we still have technological unleashing of people's dreams, but yeah, but what's, what is it actually to do? Basically, you know, what happens is we have people using all sorts of creative energies and insights and innovation to create ever better platforms to fill out forms. <laughs> so imagination now exists in the service of bureaucracy, bureaucracy that, which thus encompasses every aspect of our lives. I mean, even right before I, you know, gave this talk, I got these, um, you know, uh, three different pieces of paper I have to sign and fill out in order to get paid. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that when Max Weber gave talks, you know, in Heidelberg in 1910, you know, he didn't actually have to fill out three forms. And those were the Germans. I mean, they were supposed to be the worst, right? <laughs> He's like, somehow we, this has happened to us and we don't even notice it anymore, you know? From days of long ago, from uncharted regions of the universe comes a legend. The Legend of Sovereign Tech, podcast of the universe. A mighty tech show loved by anarchists, feared by authoritarians. As Sovereign Tech's legend grew, peace settled across the galaxy. On planet Earth, a union of egoists was formed. Together with the open source, retro gaming, and liberty-loving communities, they maintain peace throughout the universe. Until a new horrible menace threatened the galaxy. Sovereign Tech was needed once more. This is the podcast of super host Dr. Brian Sovereign. Specially trained and sent out into the galaxy to bring back Sovereign Tech. Podcast of the Universe. 
You have got the best in professional podcasting, baby, right here, coming to you from, well, as I've said many times on Sovereign Tech, and of course, since this is Sovereign Tech, who the hell are you even listening to? It is I, the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, the prince of dorkness. Woo! <laughs> uh, I had a friend call me that the other day. <laughs> here for you, uh... As I was gonna, you know, as, as I was saying on Sovereign Tech, of course, one of our, our 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 maxims, one of our axioms, is that your computer is your country, because I mean, you know, borders are bullshit and blah blah. <laughs> if anything is your is your country, it might as well be your computer in the digital age that we live within. Um, and I am coming to you from my country that runs Windows Seven now. I am not going to spend a ton of time going over again how I so super securely, and I'm not boasting or exaggerating when I say that, uh, how I super securely run Windows 7. Uh, you know, it is like the, and it's not in a VM. It is, I mean, that's certainly a great way to go about that, but it's not in a VM. It is running on my Dell 7480 on purpose. I have not upgraded. Well, I actually bought, you know, got my hands on this laptop for the very reasons of running Windows 7 on it. Um, but for about a year, this is what I've been using to do just about everything I do in relation to Sovereign Tech and really a lot of the fun stuff that I do as well. Um, now, the, the problem is, and, you know, lots of uh, lots of users of Windows machines have known this for some time. The problem is that, you know, Windows 7, even though, you know, it's a 64-bit operating system, so there are really no technical limitation, not real technical limitations on what it should be able to run on, or conversely, what software should be able to run on it, um, we are effectively, Windows 7 users and Windows 8 users, even though whatever, <laughs> do those still exist? I guess, uh, even though it's less than 3% of windows installs as to where, depending upon whose metrics you're looking at, uh, windows seven is anywhere between 10 to 20% of windows seven or of windows installs, which is statistically relevant at that point as to where with windows eight, it's not. And that's not a surprise because most people held on to windows seven during the entire windows eight era. But anyway, we've known that we were getting pushed into uh, not just updating to Windows 10, which I believe goes technically out of service in 2025, which admittedly is a 10-year run. That's not bad. You know, but right now, the big push, as people are finally getting pushed away from Windows 7, um, due to the supposed end of extended service updates that will end in February of 2023, or well, January, 2023, I suppose, technically, um, even though we've already gotten leaked documents that suggest actually windows seven ESU support is going to go significantly longer, might even go as long as windows 10 will, but we're being really pushed into windows 11. Of course, the problem with windows 11 is you have bullshit hardware requirements that are just that, or are mostly that they're bullshit, even though there are some new, 
uh, security features baked into Windows 11 that actually do take advantage of the TP 2.0, TPM 2.0 module. Uh, but that's, that's only recently and Microsoft's not really talking about it much. So like a part of me still wonders, okay, how big of a deal is this anyway? Not that you can't get past all of that with windows 11. You absolutely can log in without having to use a Microsoft account. You absolutely can, uh, log in, you know, without it even like, I think you can even get past the, the internet connectivity issue and you can easily get past the TPM 2.0, uh, you know, hardware requirement. Regardless, we're getting pushed into updating to Windows 11. And in this past week, one of the maybe bigger signs of that push didn't even really come from Microsoft. Uh, it came from Google, of all things. And that is, they announced that Chrome, as in the web browser, Google Chrome, will no longer be receiving updates uh, or after February, uh, 20, February 7th, specifically February 7th, 2023. So that'll be, uh, Chrome 110, which will end official support for windows seven. Now that doesn't mean you can't install older versions of Chrome, but you're not going to get the latest security updates. Now, here's the thing. Most media outlets that were reporting about this came out and, and, and we're just saying like, Oh, this is the end. This is the end. This is the end. This is where others, if they actually read the documentation from Google, and this would not be surprising for Google, um, th that it actually said that it was a tentative date, like that. It's not set in stone, just like with Microsoft, we're still thinking that, Oh, you know what? They might actually like support windows seven into 2026, which I absolutely think they should. Now, a part of this isn't a surprise, um, and, and I think a couple of things are, are going on here. And you might be asking, what is the importance of all this? Well, we're, we're, I'm, there is a broader point that speaks to everyone, even if you're not a Windows 7 user, uh, that we'll get into. So we talked about, maybe a couple episodes ago, how Google Chrome was going to start using um, its own uh, certificate suite underneath. So it's no longer going, on Windows, it's no longer going to use windows built in security certificates. It's actually going to use its own. Now this is not new for web browsers to do. Firefox has done this forever on every platform, just about that it's on, including Android and windows. Um, and I've applauded Mozilla for that. Um, because I think that that's a, a great degree of separation that does add on a lot of security, particularly more for Android than windows, but still it's there and it's great. Um, I appreciate that. I mean, I don't even think it's a bad move for Google to do. Um, I said it was the right move. In fact, it just proved me right that there, that Mozilla's model with Firefox was the right one, which I've been saying for the past 10 years, at least. Now here's where things I think might get a little finicky and we do have some unanswered questions and I have tried to get answers. And this makes me wonder about things. Okay. But, and, but let's, let's talk about it here in the foreplay. So it's important to understand that windows seven and windows eight, I could be wrong about windows eight, but I'm pretty sure about this. I mean, you got it like for, for many, even people who are windows diehards, you have to understand that windows eight is like, it's, it's like the Spanish, the Spanish flu of 1918, right? <laughs> Where, you know, it happened. It, 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 it ruined a lot of things, you know? I, well, I mean, and I don't want to make light of how many people died you know, during the Spanish flu, uh, or, you know, from the Spanish flu, but you know, it happened, but like 
afterwards that it happened and people got past it, they basically pretended that it never happened. Right. And Windows 8 is kind of that situation, even Windows 8.1. Anyway, my point. So Windows 7 and I think Windows 8 both had 32-bit and 64-bit versions of their operating system. Okay. Now, what Google is doing with Chrome's uh, built-in, newly built-in certificate store, I could believe would not be able to run on 32-bit software. I could firmly believe that, that it would do memory calls far beyond four gig of RAM. And frankly, I don't blame them. Like, I, I, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, I, I mean, fuck. I mean, as far as 64-bit architecture goes, like, I've been on that train since before, you know, Windows or Microsoft is even supporting it. Uh, well, they would have Windows XP 64-bit, which, you know, I was one of the few that actually ran that. But point being, you know, I had my Athline 64 as soon as I could from AMD. You know, we're talking, holy shit, that, that's like 15 years ago. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so I don't really have a problem with that. Like moving away from 32-bit architecture into full 64-bit architecture is a fine and dandy, dandy move. Like that is a genuine hardware and like system-wide, uh, you know, performance boost and improvement. Okay. That there is no argument from, from me on. Uh, and it's interesting also to point this out that this coincides with, uh, like the Google pixel seven, which cannot run 32 bit Android apps. Uh, like, you know, flappy bird just isn't going to happen on there. It only runs 64 bit. I have no problem with this. That's fine. Again, make the case to me and I will believe you, but you got to make it pretty damn good case now. So I could believe that 32-bit versions of Windows 7 and Windows 8, you know, would not be able to run Google Chrome from version 110 up with some of its, you know, its own new infrastructure, or, you know, its new, its certificate stores, its own new architecture. I could fully believe that, but there is no fucking reason that 64-bit Windows 7 and Windows 8, even though I don't care about that and no one should. But there's no reason that Windows 7 64-bit should not be able to run Google Chrome. Again, in 64-bit. Now, probably what's happening here, yeah, Google wants to move the industry forward as well. Of course, Google is also putting an entire game store on Windows 10 and Windows 11, so I'm sure they would, you know, they're putting the play game, the game play game store, right? Um, so I'm sure that they would love to get more more eyes on a screen that could, you know, bring in more revenue for them potentially. Conversely, it's also interesting that Microsoft is now looking at putting a game, uh, you know, Android app store for, for games specifically out there. But anyway, that that's a whole other conversation, um, that we're probably not going to get to in this episode and probably not going to get to in, in, uh, you know, when we, we talk about video games as we do, we've already got a very interesting subject to get, to get into there. Anyway, so, you know, like, again, Google wanting people to be on later versions of Windows, there's incentive for that, and I get it. But this is bullshit that this is happening. Um, and they're not the only ones. This week, and, and believe me, this, is, this pisses me off to no end, and I've brought this up over and over again. Um, I got, just this past week, to coincide with Google's announcement, um, and, and, and I can guess what's going on here and, and I'll, I'll, maybe I'll get into why, uh, Mulvad, 
which is the VPN that I've been recommending for quite some time now. But Malvad VPN, they, like the other day I was activating my VPN, switching servers, and suddenly I got a message. In fact, I can pull it up right here because I'm on a Windows 7 machine right now, which is doing everything and anything I could possibly want it to do, except for when I'm running into these horseshit um, <laughs> software limitations again, which again are just horseshit. Like they're, they're, they're faux barriers that don't have to exist. Certainly not for 64 bit windows seven. Yeah. It says right here for on the Mulvad app, it says unsupported version. Your privacy might be at risk with this unsupported app version. Please update now. So of course I went to go update and then it said, Oh, well, you know, sorry, but this version is the last version that supports windows seven. Please upgrade to windows 10 or 11. And I'm like, what? I mean, the whole reason, like, so Mulvad was doing a lot of things right. They were one of the very early adopters of WireGuard, and they've got some really cool things going on. Overall, their implementation and their technologies are right on the money. I'm not really complaining about that. However, there's, this is another case. There is no reason that they cannot continue to support Windows 7. The entire reason that I went with Mulvad Okay. Over others, which I did have some other options, even though I was ultimately wanting to get away from private internet access. The whole reason I went with Malvad was because it specifically said on their system requirements that it supports windows seven. Bingo. You got my money. Okay. That's what I want. I want the software that supports windows seven. And I can tell you this right now, Malvad has lost the customer. Because there's just, there's no logic to this unless, I mean, the only thing I could kind of figure, and I tried to ask around and this is going to get to another point. I tried to ask why, what's your thinking behind this? And the, I mean, the one thing I'm wondering is, is if somehow like Electron is updating in such a way, which is a container that a lot of software uses. And I don't agree with it. And I've complained about it for years on this show. If Electron is, you know, as a package will no longer function with windows seven. And, you know, again, like, so why is Google say, say Google Chrome could run in, in 64 bit, say Mulvad's app could run in 64 bit windows seven. Why are they just writing it off completely? Probably because they don't want to handle and deal with the confusion of people who are running 32 bit windows seven or windows eight. And the people who are still running windows eight probably have a 32 bit, you know, uh, processor in their computer, whatever that happens to be. So they don't want to deal with that, you know, with, with like laying out whether it's okay. No, we'll continue to support 64 bit, but we won't support 32 bit. You know, I, I don't get it. I don't know. Like, I, I'm not sure what exactly, you know, the logic is here. Uh, I mean, it's funny. Like there are other apps. In fact, particularly I, I think of like Plex where they continue to make, and this is a funny thing. They continue to make a 32 bit version of the Plex app, probably because, I mean, that's more like something designed usually for more server hardware and servers, you know, often run for decades or more. Um, but they, they make it clear. Okay. Our 64 bit app works only on windows 10 and 11, as far as windows goes, but our 32 bit app, which is still regularly updated, works beautifully on windows seven and windows eight. Why can't other companies do what Plex is doing? I don't understand. You are, you are literally leaving hundreds of thousands of users in the lurch for again, no real good reason. 
And if you need to just be particular like Plex is why it's not that hard. You know, I was testing Plex on a windows seven machine here and you know, it said, okay, 32 bit version sports windows seven, 64 bit version does not. Okay. I download the 32 bit version and it still works fucking great because Plex doesn't need more than four goddamn gig of Ram to, to, to handle things. Ah, I'm, I'm baffled here. And to make it worse, I tried to get answers from other, uh, uh, browser developers, you know, think like basically anybody who uses the blink engine, you know, or chromium as a base. So, you know, asking opera, asking Vivaldi, asking brave asking, well, I mean, Microsoft, you know, edge uses chromium, but they seem to have made it clear that edge will only be updated regularly as long as, um, ESU, you know, updates are still getting pushed out. So arguably edge would end support on windows seven when you get to, um, you know, when you get to January or January or February of 2023, but I tried getting answers, um, sent emails, team members tweeted at them from all of these different browser vendors, you know, like, Hey, are you going to stop? supporting windows seven and it's been crickets across the board and not a single fucking media outlet is asking that question either. Not one I've looked cause I want to know, you know, it's like, really, is this going to push me back into using Firefox? Is this finally going to push me off of windows seven? Uh, no, but part of the reason I think that I'm getting crickets on this is the entire industry is just like, well, we don't know. Like they just don't know whether or not what Microsoft is going to do. Are they going to, cause if Microsoft pushes it to, if they push ESU support to 2026, then there's, you know, I could imagine where Google will change their mind, you know, and maybe they'll make the particulars about 64 bit again, even the 64 bit part is a guess for me. You know, I mean, even Steve Gibson was talking about this on security now last week. He's like, there's no reason for them to do this. Um, but I, you know, maybe, maybe brave and all of them are just waiting to find out if Microsoft's actually going to pull the plug on windows seven before they're willing to answer that said, I think it's a crock of shit, you know, for a genuine tech journalist as I am, who knows all the tools of the trade. Cause I also do PR work to get fucking crickets from their support teams. So much for that again, is the answer that they don't know? Probably, probably. But what a shame because here's a chance to, for a browser. I, I mean, this would be free marketing, you know, is Firefox going to keep working for it? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't see why not. Uh, <laughs> in fact, like very updated versions of Firefox, frankly worked for windows XP for the longest goddamn time. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, like, am I going to have to go to Firefox because of this? Because as I've said, it's not like I roll the dice here with windows seven. I have an incredibly secure setup. I am getting the official ESU updates. I get the same updates every patch Tuesday that everybody else gets. And I run zero patch, which is literally patching the system at the Ram level all the time. I mean, this, I, I'd put money on that. My windows seven machine is more secure than just about anybody's windows 10 or windows 11 machine. Is it as secure as my open BSD machine? <laughs> no but that's not the point. This is fucking dumb. And I wouldn't be surprised if both Google and really Microsoft and whoever else are sweating 
that they may be seeing, I mean, cause you can go on Reddit and look up about this. They could be seeing the numbers that actually windows seven installs are increasing, not decreasing. They're increasing because people are fucking done with the horseshit that Microsoft's doing with windows 11. And frankly, the lack of interesting developments that they're putting into windows 10. Now, not that that, I mean, Hey, you know, <laughs> would windows users, would they find out that, that Microsoft isn't like putting any new features into windows 10. Usually that's like cause for celebration, right? Oh, no, new features. Awesome. Just let windows 10, just let windows do what it does. But again, the argument for why you want to upgrade is because there are new features that are just going to change your fucking life. But that's not happening with windows 10. It's happening with windows 11, but then windows 11 has a whole slew of other problems. Now, the other point I kind of want, I want to get to here, and I know this is supposed to be the foreplay and we're only supposed to do little stories, but this is turning out to be fucking huge, but it's important. The other point, uh, in fact, speaking of Steve Gibson, so he came out and admitted, now, I mean, I've been talking about this for a very long time and really Steve had as well. You know, he came out and admitted, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, like, yeah, he says, I'm, I'm doing this show. I'm on, I'm on a desktop and it's a windows seven machine. And you know, other podcasters like practically laughed at him for doing that. And, and I was really bothered by this because, you know, some of them are people that I respect who I actually, I really enjoy their opinion and I think they're entertaining people. Um, and the argument all seemed to be like, why wouldn't you want to run like the latest, most secure software that, that's a misnomer that like, or that's, that, that is a, that's misconstruing security. Okay. I would argue that particularly like with Microsoft baking in so many more quote unquote new features into the, into windows 11, into the operating system that you're really like the more, you know, it's, it's one of the oldest sayings in the book, not just for sovereign tech. But the more they overthink the plumbing, the easier it is to stop up the drain, right? The more com complexity is the enemy of security. And adding in all these features is adding in layers of complexity. It's adding in more code. The more code you add, the more trouble you're going to run into, quite frankly. You're supposed to keep this shit simple. Let people choose what feature the features they want by selecting the software from the ecosystem that is built around windows for decades. This is, this is insane. Um, and it, I mean, really like it's so anti consumer and you know, you could say to me, well, windows or Google or Microsoft or Google or take your pick of the company has no requirement to support you know, older versions of windows. Yeah, you're totally right. There, there is no requirement for them to do that. But then there's also no reason at all that their newer software can't run on windows seven other than they are like, like it's, it's just like the same shit with TPM 2.0 for, for windows 11, making that a requirement. There was no point to that. TPM doesn't do anything. And so sure, they don't have to support anything going backwards, but then also they don't have to make things that in name only force you to get away from something that it should work perfectly fine on. Do you get what I'm saying? 
Like there's, like I said, there's no reason that Google Chrome and look, fuck, I don't know. I don't want anybody to use Google Chrome. I don't care that Google Chrome doesn't work on windows seven. I mean, I'd say that's just as well. That's one less security hole, frankly, that can run on windows seven. But my point is there's no reason that Google can't run on windows seven. If there is, let me know. All you gotta do is shut me up is tell me why. You cannot, it cannot run on windows seven. I mean, it's easy enough to like, just modify the executable file. Just, just modify the XE. That's all you have to do. And then frankly, just about anything that runs on windows 10 or windows 11 will run on windows seven, unless it has like some very specific .NET dependencies that just doesn't exist on windows seven. But again, those dependencies are bullshit. They're not real. They are there. It's a faux dependency designed to just force you to upgrade. It doesn't actually do anything. It brings no appreciable benefit to the consumer, to the user. Fuck. And then what, what do they do? What do they say? It's like, well, don't you want the latest and greatest? Don't you want this operating system that can anticipate what you want to do before you even think about it? No, 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 I don't. Do you understand what computers are supposed to do? Computers are supposed to do one thing, whatever the user tells it to do. That's all computers are meant to do. None of the algorithms, none of that horse shit computers are meant to do what they are told. They are not artificial intelligences as hard as some ass had at Dartmouth or wherever else might want to try and tell you that they are. They're not. When I press the letter a on a keyboard, all that's supposed to show up is the letter a, I am not supposed to get an autofill recommendation of, Oh, do you want to look up Asian ass porn? No, I just want the letter a, because maybe I'm going to type in Asriel or something like that. It's fucking madness. You know, it, I mean, it, and it goes to lack of trust, uh, of the user, um, which I'm not going to say that that's wholly unjustified. But basically, <laughs> because Silicon Valley just, man, we got to grow, got to have growth, got to have more installs, got to have more installs. How do we get more installs? Okay, we got to make, we got to make the software dumber, not in a good way. We got to make software, you know, where, how to put this, we got to make software, quote unquote, more intelligent because the more users we're going to bring in are dumber, right? So basically they're... <laughs> They're making non-secure systems just because they have to bring in the morons so that they can have growth numbers year over year to appease their investors. Do you really, I mean, this is, I, I talk about this all the time, right? The church of eternal growth, the madness in this way of thinking that, you know, like just because you have to bring everybody and anybody into your you know, into your digital ecosystem, you will forego security. You will let security, you know, I mean, just let exploits ultimately run amok because you need to program in shit that you think will make your system easier to use by the dum dums. Madness. Sacrificing security for growth. Fuck you. I have said this a billion times on this show. Computers were never meant to be for everyone. 
ever. Because most people don't know what they'd want a computer to do for them. And that's okay. Because all a computer is supposed to do is what it is told. Do you have to have a certain level of intellect to be able to know uh, how to efficaciously tell a computer to do something? Yes. And those people can get online and use a computer. Is there any great advantage to be able to do to, to, to be able to doing that? Uh, in a way, but it's not really an advantage. It's just a difference. And as I was saying last week, the whole, one of the major points, major themes of last week's episode of Sobertech was the title of it. Triple black Adam. One of the major themes was that nothing has changed. Silicon Valley hasn't changed anything. All of the efforts that they are making, all the quote unquote advancements that they're making is all about schlepping ads. In fact, you know what's hilarious? So that episode came out last Monday. Okay. Triple black Adam. They came out last Monday. Not but two days later on Windows Weekly, on the Twit Network, Mary Jo Foley, who I have tons of respect for, and she was right on the money with this. Mary Jo Foley came right out and said, Microsoft's, I mean, and we're talking about somebody who's been reporting, covering Microsoft for decades. She came right out and said, Microsoft's thinking is today that Windows is just a gateway for serving ads. That's all Windows is. So what's the problem here? The problem here, I mean, A, well, first off, she proved my point. She proved everything I said just two, three days previous. Thanks, Satan, for that. I'm not the only one calling this shit. But I think the ultimate problem here is that with Windows 7, you can't schlep those ads because there's things, you know, at, at the core of the operating system that weren't baked in like they were with Windows 10, right? Every time you install Windows 10 or Windows 11, what's one of the first things it asks you about? It's like, well, we want to give you your own advertising ID. That's exactly what they call it. That's not a part of Windows 7. And that's got to bother the fuck out of every company, frankly, in Silicon Valley, not just Microsoft. I bet Google uses that advertising ID all the time. I could be wrong. Could be wrong. Might be siloed. I could be wrong, but I wouldn't be surprised. And just another reason that they don't want to support windows seven anymore, because God damn it, that doesn't give us what we want. And that is to push more ads on you to get you to buy, 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 buy you fucking consumer. You loser. This is, this is goddamned insanity. Because there's just, there's no logic to it. Okay. <laughs> and again, like whatever the, the browser, all the other browser companies, they're all going to show their colors come 2023. We're going to find out where they stand. And I can't wait because we're, we're going to be calling bullshit on anybody who, you know, depending on, on what their marketing speak is around this. I, and if there's silence, that's even worse. Fucking cowards. All right. So <laughs> that was a very long foreplay, but let's get into some other stories, shall we? I did actually have others lined up, but we don't have to spend a ton of time on them. Um, the other story I wanted to bring up, and this is also coming from the information, which has been leaking some very interesting documents as late. Of course, as I theorized when they leaked about Google doubling down on the pixel line and not giving up on it, unlike other things that exist in the Google graveyard, um, 
you know, like I said with that, that no, 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 the information didn't get a leaked document. They, they were handed that by design by Google. Now is the same thing here happening with what I'm about to talk about, because this also initially came from the information and this is relevant to Apple. Maybe. But the information had got, you know, got their hands apparently on a report that claims that Apple is working on a 16 inch iPad. Fucking massive. Um, and this, okay. <laughs> now, is this a leaked or is this a leak or is this, you know, controlled, uh, uh, marketing by Apple? I would, this is another case where I would argue this is controlled marketing. And the reason I would say that is I think that Apple is testing the waters on what people would think about a 16 inch iPad. Like, would they accept a device like that? Because Apple's not in position anymore where they can fucking just make something and people will buy it. You know, it used to be the case where you had the reality distortion field, right? Especially in the Steve jobs days. Um, Apple doesn't exist in that world anymore. So, or at least I don't think that they do. Um, and you know, well, anyway, we, we don't have to get lost on that. As far as what do I think of a 16 inch iPad? That's the main reason I wanted to bring this up. Um, a, this does prove my point that they really do want to replace MacBooks with iPads. They really want to get away from that. Why? Because they want to cut of everything in the fucking app store. Even though I know Mac, you know, Mac OS can kind of run iPhone apps, right? Or, you know, iOS apps, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I really think they, they want that, that level of control. I mean, just imagine this, you know, because while, while MacBooks, I mean, MacBooks are still as great as they are. And I'm not kidding. Okay. While MacBooks are great, maybe even, you know, pound for pound, the best computers on the planet. Um, Apple would love to not have to pay for that entire design division. You know, I, I mean, really they, like they would just love to get away from that. I'm sure. And close all that off and just have the rest of those because the MacBook is still the point I was going to get to the MacBook is still a niche computer. Really? I mean, like the, the percentage of people that use Macs is so fucking low, Com especially compared to Linux and as well compared to Microsoft, you know, compared to windows. Um, it's so low and, and I don't know. I mean, yeah, the, the, the M ones and M two processors are really, really making a dent, I think, but I don't know that even that is enough numbers to justify having this entire premium product line. So I'm not surprised that a 16 inch iPad is in the works at all. It just fits in with my theories of what they wanted to do for an incredibly long time anyway. Um, however, do I think this is a good idea? No, <laughs> this is. <laughs> and it's, it's hilarious, right? Because remember Apple said, yeah, we're never putting a, a touchscreen into, into MacBooks, but yeah, but when you're making a 16 inch iPad, what's the goddamn difference? Like, why not at that point, if you're going to do this, why not come out with a MacBook that, you know, has a touchscreen on it? Look, I don't even think laptops and touchscreens are a good idea. I'm just saying, why not do it? The only reason you're not doing it is because you want to make it a feature that's more attractive to another class of device, in this case, iPads, and get people away from their MacBooks, perhaps. I mean, because I can certainly see where creatives would find this interesting. 
you know, artists and whoever else with an Apple pencil and everything. Like I could see where a larger canvas, you know, a 16 inch canvas could be very, very attractive to them. Um, I mean, at the same, like I would probably feel differently if there wasn't a 13 inch iPad or, you know, 12.9 inch iPad, uh, because, you know, there are books like, I mean, one of the main things I use an iPad for is to read comics and read books. Now having a 10 inch or 10 inch plus screen is very handy because there are books, you know, PDFs that you need that screen real estate to be able to read the, the little text and everything going on. You know, I think like if I'm reading the Talmud, like, you know, doing that on an eight inch screen or smaller just doesn't cut it the way that the Talmud set up. Um, I mean, the Talmud is effectively written and compiled like, like the internet, like, like, like many or not even many, but like web pages. But, and that's interesting in itself. You could read things into that, you know, for a book that's almost 2000 years old or a collection of books that are almost 2000 years old, but we won't go there. That's not the point of this anyway. Um, so, you know, but, but 16 inches is like a little much. It's not something you can easily just like pack into a smaller bag or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I guess my ultimate feeling is, is that like a 16 inch, I mean, you know, we talked about this last week. I think that the, you know, the iPad lineup is already incredibly confusing. Frankly, why do 16 inches? Why not just go all the way? Do 20, do 24, like go nuts. If this is meant for artists to have a larger canvas, give them a huge fucking canvas. So I feel like a 16 inch is just really it's play is to get people away from MacBooks more than anything else. Because if they were dead serious about this for what would lot, what, what it would logically be used for outside of being a MacBook replacement, um, which I'm not saying it can't do that to some degree, again, to some degree, but you know what, what you would really use it for. Yeah. You'd want a 24 inch, 30 inch for shit's sake, like go, go all the way. So anyway, just my thoughts on, on the 16 inch iPad. Uh, you know, I, I had another bit about telegram. Um, may, maybe I'll save that for a little bit later. In fact, you know what I'm going to make, I'm going to call an audible here. I'm going to make the telegram piece our story of the week. And we'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech and we're going to talk about Telegram. Woo. Have you had enough of the big name web hosting services that are long on promises but short on bleeding edge features, uptime, and customer service? Or are you just looking for a performance boost for your business's online presence? The answer is Agorist Hosting. Agorist Hosting is the agile web host that offers full concierge service from website redesign, full e-commerce solutions, even custom apps for your Shopify store, and more. All with security, reliability, redundancy, and privacy at the forefront. Oh, and those bleeding edge features? How about hosting your data in a decentralized system like IPFS, the interplanetary file system? Good luck getting that from those other guys. Agorist Hosting is ready to take your web presence into the future. Head over to agoristhosting.com to get started. That's A-G-O-R-I-S-T hosting.com. Agoristhosting.com. Story of the Week. It is time for story of the week. And we had a, a different story set up for story of the week about Google and biometrics, but really we were just going to make fun of politicians. And so, you know, 
that's old hat. You can do that any, any time you want. Um, all right. So let's talk about telegram. And this is really playing off of something we talked about, uh, even in 2021, when Pavel Durov kind of started down this train of really, you know, speaking to politicians of calling for frankly, government action against Apple. Um, now starting on October 28th, and then also as of this recording, October 31st, uh, he has, it wasn't just like a one-off. My hope was that Pavel Durov was just like, oh, he was just having a bad day. And he's like, yeah, I want the politicians to step in with their guns because again, government is the monopoly use of force. And so any appeals to government to solve a problem is an appeal to violence. That is not conjecture. That is fact. That is by government's own admission. So it appears, however, as of October 28th and October 31st of 2022, that Pavel Durov was not just having a bad day last time that he called for the government to step in. Here we go. Now, all right, hold on, hold on. Wait, before I read this from Durov's channel, it's totally public. Anybody else can read it. Before I read this, let me be clear, as I have been since Sovereign Tech started, part of the reason that I've been such a supporter of Telegram and by paid supporter at that, uh, you know, when, once that became a, a, a possibility and, you know, part of the reason that I was such a supporter of telegram was, you know, as the saying goes, don't follow the money, follow the attitude. And the attitude was right. Why? Because Pavel Durov was essentially an open anarchist, triple black wearing the whole thing. I've talked about this countless times. And however, <laughs> in my opinion, in general, an anarchist does not call upon, you know, others to get locked up or killed or whatever, you know, by, uh, well, we could get into massive conversations around ethics, but point being is that this isn't exactly, uh, shall we say, I mean, again, anarchism can take a lot of different flavors, but this doesn't fit in with most. So let me read from Pavel Durov here. From October 28th from Durov's channel, some content creators started using third-party payment bots to sell access to individual posts in their Telegram channels. This way, content creators could receive close to 100% of whatever their subscribers paid, which was great. Stallion breaking in for a minute. So what is he talking about here? Probably something akin to OnlyFans and people were using Telegram for that. Um, it is, I, I want to be clear on this before I read further. And, and, and it took me a little bit to figure this out. Like, you know, there, there are like community features, like nearby features for like nearby discovery features in telegram where you can find out if other people are around you. Uh, this had, you know, like the way that, that Pavel Durov pitched this was not, uh, you know, how he pitched it was, oh yeah, you could find other users, you know, who are nearby you. Isn't that great? And it's like, and when you stop and think about it for a minute, you're like, okay, that's an interesting feature and you can turn it on and off, which is nice. But when you stop and think about that feature where you could like auto detect people nearby you within a certain radius, you're like, wait a minute, why the hell would I just want to talk to somebody because they also happen to use telegram? Like that doesn't give you anything in common. What you think it gives you like a, a greater sense of privacy, like, or that you're both like privacy advocates. No, I don't think there's any real like 
uh, I, I don't think you have any real reason to assume that, you know, like now lots of people use signal. That doesn't mean that they're anarchists like Moxie Marlin spike is, or was, I mean, that's another reason I argued for using signal. Moxie is an open anarchist. Great. Anyway, signals, you know, like the way signals federated model was going away. And that's a whole other conversation. I've already explained, you know, my issues there. Um, but yeah, so what was this community like nearby, you know, find people nearby feature about it's about sex work. No, no, I have a problem with sex work. No. Okay. <laughs> like I, I don't, I mean, I, fuck, I even wear a shirt that says, um, you know, uh, sex work is real work, but <laughs> Let's, let's be clear here that like these features that are getting put in are ultimately about sex work, including what is effectively only fans, right? I mean, read what he's saying here. He's like, so some content creators, yeah, content creators started using third party payment bots to sell access to individual posts in their telegram channels. Well, I'm sure there are people who are doing that, that do are not offering sexual content. Who are the people that have a limited amount of platforms that they can sell sexual content on? Well, it's sex workers <laughs> or that they can sell content on, you know, sexual or whatever it's sex workers. Again, am I complaining? Not exactly, but let's be honest who he's talking about here. Okay. And let's be honest who a lot of these features are for. And that said, again, while I have no problem with sex workers and I say, right on, do what you got to do to make the money, baby. Okay. Um, I do have to wonder about what the priorities are, you know, for, for Pavel Durov, you know, like, like what, how's money being made on the side here? Like, I got to wonder about this. Okay. Um, and, and it's again, while I have no problem with sex work, there's something about this that feels, that feels off, right. That you're, you're specifically building a bunch of features for this purpose. And again, it's not like you're just like building an OnlyFans competitor or something like that. Like, look, Sovereign Tech, frankly, you know, need, you know, could use something like OnlyFans because I've already been banned from PayPal. Oh, we could talk about PayPal and maybe we will. Okay. Anyway, remember the story we talked about with PayPal a little while ago, about 2,500? We're going to get into that. We're, all right. We're, we're, we're going to cover that in the next segment. Now, um, you know, I've been banned from PayPal. I almost got banned from Stripe. You don't want to know what that was like. Okay. You know, going through that, like that was fucking stress. Um, you know, like it's, and yes, like my content could be called erotic or sexy at times, especially like shit that I write, you know, among other things. Okay. Um, so, but I wouldn't necessarily call what I do sex work though. If someone did describe it as that, okay, fine. You know, I, I guess people have jerked off to what I do. So would that account as sex work? All right. Um, or jailed off for that matter as well, whatever you do. Uh, anyway, I'm not saying that these things like OnlyFans couldn't be useful for somebody who's not, you know, engaged in, and I don't say this, and I'm not saying this with disrespect who do not engage in, you know, again, prostitution or, you know, other things. Certainly there, there is a necessity for that, you know, platforms that allow for some kind of respect, more of freedom of speech and expression. Um, and you know, the sad part is most people who are into freedom of speech, forget about the freedom of expression part because they don't want anybody doing sex work. Most screw those losers. But anyway, (laughs) half right is still wrong. Regardless, this is important. This point of, okay, what kind of features and what are the purpose 
who are these features really for? What's that about? That's, Im that's important color to add into what Pavel Durov is saying here about Telegram. Now, let me read on again from his public post on October 28th. Quote, unfortunately, we received word from Apple that they were not happy with content creators monetizing their efforts without paying a 30% tax to Apple. Since Apple has complete control over its ecosystem, we had no alternative but to disable such paid posts on iOS devices. This is just another example of how a trillion dollar monopoly abuses its market dominance at the expense of millions of users who are trying to monetize their own content. I hope that the regulators in the EU, India, and elsewhere start taking action before Apple destroys more dreams and crushes more entrepreneurs with a tax that is higher than any government levied VAT. In the meantime, we at Telegram shall work to offer creators powerful and easy to use tools to monetize their content outside of Apple's restrictive ecosystem. Okay. Now that's the end quote. That's the end of his post. Now I want, I'm going to read the October 31st one as well, but I want to raise some very interesting or, you know, some very, uh, I want to, I want to bring in some minutia, bring in some nuance into what's being said here. And you might, this might shock you. I'm actually going to defend Apple just a little bit, just a little bit, not much, just a little. But now, but let, let's, let's, let's talk about Pavel for a second. So he says right here, I hope that the regulators in the EU, India, and elsewhere started taking action before Apple destroys more dreams. Okay. If he said, I hope Apple users, uh, uh, you know, in the EU, India, and elsewhere start taking action, I would have no problem with him saying that. Yes. Get away from iOS devices. That's enough. You want to use Telegram properly? Get it on an Android device. Don't even go through the Google Play Store. To Telegram's credit, and I mean this, to Telegram's credit, they allow you to download it from their website and run it independently. Fucking phenomenal. And I'm not kidding about that. That's great about Telegram. However, I don't think that this is entirely about the 30% Apple tax, which do I think that that's crazy in its own way? Yes. But for whatever reason, the market is speaking and saying that it's okay. So if you're the kind that think that, you know, if, if the market is God for you, which I have no gods, but you know, plenty of libertarians and ANCAPs do that being the market. Um, you know, if you think the market is God and it's always right, then, you know, don't complain. And Pavel Duroff shouldn't be complaining either because he did seem to, you know, make arguments at least years ago for, you know, <laughs> yay markets. And, and, and look, Hey, don't give me any horseshit. Don't give me any crap about this being crony capitalism or something. No, 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 no. No one is putting a gun to your head to use iOS. No one. You are letting the market speak. You have a problem with the 30% Apple tax and you're using a fucking Apple device. Your problem. That's not the government. Fuck the government. I'll, I mean, I'll say that all goddamn day long. Okay. But let us be abundantly clear here. No one, no one, no one is forcing you to use an Apple device. Oh, but my work phone is an Apple device. Okay. Yeah. Your work phone is your work can pay for the apps that you need to use. And they will, if they're giving you a goddamn phone because they're not cheap. In that case, sure. Your employer, you are in, in effect kind of forced to use an Apple device, but you're not forced to buy shit on the Apple phone. Give me a break. No one's forcing you to use an iOS device. Don't say, don't say that the, Oh, this is a, this is a mixed economy. This isn't, this isn't an actual market. This is crony. No, it's not fucking crony. The only crony is you. Now where I'm going to defend Apple a little bit. Apple 
hates porn. I mean, I think everybody on their C-suite watches it all day long while they're sitting in their office uh, or records it, you know, on their 4K devices or something. (laughs) But as a policy, Apple hates porn. And I think just like what we were talking about, what is this being used for? Again, I don't have a problem with sex work, but what is this being used for? Likely sex work. That's where these features make sense. Because why the fuck would you talk to somebody? Again, really? You're going to connect to somebody over, oh, hey, you use Telegram? Let's be best friends. Yeah, just, I hope that's all crickets, just like I gave from all of you. Anyway. So, I could see this just as much as anything else. That it's not about Apple, you know, yeah, okay, part of it could be because they're not getting a cut. Sure, I could understand that. But I could see this even more so, Apple getting pissed off about it because it would stand in violation of their anti-porn policies. And Pavel's not being very open about that and being very honest about that. And that's disappointing. Not as disappointing as his call for regulators, as his call for guns to get pointed at Apple, which isn't, Apple isn't even forcing anyone to use their devices. They might be assholes about it, but they're not forcing anybody to use their devices. There is no reason to point guns at Apple. And that's what Pavel Durov is calling for. He is calling for violence against that company. I think it'd be a goddamn laugh if Tim Cook came out and said that and was like honest about what government's really all about. Boy, that'd be funny as fuck. But anyway... You know, I, I was listening to a, uh, an interview with uh, Rabble, who is one of like the co-founders of Twitter, and he's recently uh, helped start like his own social media, more federated social media called Planetary, um, which I would say looks interesting. But then again, social media is a disease; like it's not a solution to anything. There is no, there's no right way to do social media you just don't do the only right way to do social media is to not do it okay so (laughs) that said um he was talking about he was being asked like you know like is planetary are these apps available on the ios app store google play whatever and he said that they were rejected multiple times by apple because apple requires them and I might not be exactly quoting him verbatim, but I think I'm getting the point requires them to have the ability in the code, um, to, you know, like essentially view what anybody is saying. And we know this has been happening with telegram as well, where like there are, if you're in certain groups of certain ideological persuasions, if you're on an Apple device, you can't even see what you can join the group, but you can't see what's being said in the group. Why? Because Apple is like, can see the content and is effectively remotely banning the content. Like what, what privacy do you expect to have? Or are are you anticipating that you have there when that kind of thing goes on? Now, the same thing can also happen in Google play on, you know, on Android, let's be clear, or at least on Google play apps, apps from the Google play store. That's the whole reason that telegram released a version that you can download independently from their website. And I applaud that. But let's be clear here, okay, that Apple knows what content Pavel Durov is talking about, and I'm 100% sure it 
it ha- you know, it's, it's something that's like breaking a well-known policy on their part. And in fact, a policy that a lot of people wouldn't disagree with, you know, think Christians, conservatives, and whoever else who, you know, even if they were like more free marketeers, they wouldn't disagree with that policy. So, you know, like I, I, again, I don't have a problem with sex workers. I just want to be clear who he's standing up for here. And ultimately my complaint is not that my complaint is that he is calling upon regulators in multiple countries to point guns at Apple. Now let's read the October 31st post, shall we? Here we go from Duroff's channel. We prepared some Halloween surprises for you, but it seems someone doesn't want us to celebrate. Telegram's latest update has been stuck in Apple review for more than a week, and we have not been informed about the current reason for the delay. Apple claims they review apps within 24 hours, but in our experience, it takes at least 7 to 10 days for any meaningful product update to reach the App Store. My friends who run smaller apps tell me it's even worse for them, as they have to wait more than a month just to ship bug fixes uh, to their Apple users. However, positive change is coming. Tomorrow, a new set of laws called the Digital Markets Act will come into force in the European Union. This regulation should put an end to the abuse of market power by gatekeepers like Google and Apple. We, the developers, should start relying on the DMA, that's the Digital uh, Makers Markets Act, to defend ourselves and our users. If you are on, if you are an app developer who faces issues with the app store or Google play, let me know about it at Pavel at Telegram, whatever. Anyway, from your company email address to the word DMA in the title, it will be up to Apple to decide if they want to spend their resources on improving their processes or processes, uh, or on fines. Okay. Let's, let's talk about this. So now he's like, not only is he calling upon the government, to do something about it. But now he's implicitly saying that somehow laws work. When I see no evidence for that whatsoever, and also no honesty on his part, that laws often have wildly unintended consequences. Also like, so what are they going to do? They're going to fine Apple if they don't follow the DMA, which I have my own problems with the DMA. I don't know that we, you know, we've already spent a ton of time on this. I have my own problems with the DMA, but you're going to find Apple a fucking trillion dollar company. You're going to find them. What? 3 billion. Boo hoo. (laughs) Do you think they give a fuck? Do you think Google gives a fuck when Texas is, is, you know, is, is trying to slap them around over biometrics use or whatever. They don't care because the data they're collecting, the data set that they're putting together, the, or in the case of Apple, the, the Apple tax, the 30% tax from developers and whatever that they're getting, the money that they're getting in from that $4 billion is a fucking pittance in comparison. Why the hell do you think this would work? Pavel? Come on, man. This is just, this is, this is, I mean, it's not just unethical what's being called for here. Frankly, it's stupidity from someone who I know knows better. Like I wanted to give him a pass first time. It's like, ah, fuck, you know, like, all right, you, you said something stupid. Like I said, bad day. No, 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 no. Now we got twice in almost as many days where he is calling for violence against tech companies. And Hey, I am calling for action, peaceful action, action of choice and agency against tech companies, including Apple 
every fucking day of the week. However, I am never, ever, ever calling for violence against any of these companies, nor would I. This is, this is goddamn madness. And it's, it's really, you know, I mean, and look, I talk with lots of people, you know, via telegram. Um, I mean, like there, there's still groups out there, you know, that are, that are, that pertain to the show that, you know, where, where things are happening there. Um, but this is get, this is getting bad. This is getting to the point where like, okay, the reason that I was trusting your platform and willing to be on your platform is because I thought we were kind of like-minded folk. And that's not the case because when does it turn into, you know, like once you start down that road of calling upon the gun of the government, you know, I mean, it's not, look, it's not like somebody's life livelihoods, perhaps to some degree, but it's not like somebody's life is on the line here. Not really, not ultimately. Okay. And there is no, there's no call for this. This is someone just losing their mind and losing perspective and really losing the ethical high ground that he once had. Now, you know, am I saying stop using telegram? I mean, are there like companies out there that are any better as far as all this goes? Yeah. I mean, not really, (laughs) you know, it remains to be seen like, you know, Moxie stepped down from signal. And I mean, look, when, when we're talking about like, when we're talking about messaging apps that are such a personal thing, this isn't social media. This is messaging apps. When we're talking about this sort of thing, um, you know, like really you need to know what's going on, what the company's mindset is and all that, because again, you could be sharing, you know, your deep darks as I call them, you know, your deep, dark, not necessarily secrets, but thoughts. You could be sharing your deep darks here. And you want to know top to bottom that you're on, you're in a space where you can feel as comfortable as possible doing that. And I don't know that telegram is that place, you know, signal that place. Yeah. Maybe it's better than this at this stage. Again, it remains to be seen, you know, what, what signals attitude is going to be now that they have, you know, new management. Um, and I have to look into that more, but this is not good. This is, this is not the direction that any app should be going where open calls for, for violent action are being made. Uh, in fact, frankly, it's ironic that again, that Pavel himself is not like that his own channel isn't being banned from the app store, right? Because that's one of the things that, that Apple looks for is, you know, like violent rhetoric and everything. I mean, this is violent fucking rhetoric. I don't get it as far as what to do. Well, that's your tolerances. Maybe you're the kind that cares for violence. If so, okay. Well, to quote Megadeth, the peaceful man stands tall. I'll be back with more. Sovereign Science. Outer space. Psychology. Book and movie recommendations. Fiction from the Sovereign Universe. Travels to points of mystery and the unexplained. And even spirituality? All of that can only mean one thing. 
the Sovereign Technica newsletter by me, Ellen Sovereign, along with some stuff by that crazy man I call my husband, Dr. Brian Sovereign. It's the latest tool in your self-directed education, the education that really matters. If you want to cut through the crap of mainstream media ass clowns, sign up for the Sovereign Technica newsletter right now at sovereign.substack.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N dot substack dot com. The Sovereign Technica Newsletter. Welcome to the future. Listener's Choice. It is time for Listener's Choice, and this is where I cover the stories that you get to me. And, uh, well, we're going to do a follow-up, another case where I'm calling an audible on what we're going to talk about, because this is, this is important. And we're doing a follow-up on a recent story that we did during listener's choice, which at the time, this is about two weeks ago at the time, pay, we found out that PayPal was going to, or like it, <laughs> PayPal was thinking about, that's how they wanted to put it. They were thinking about enacting a $2,500 fine against PayPal users who were engaged in the spreading of misinformation, whether that was via messaging apps, social media, podcasts, even other things. I mean, again, I have already been banned from PayPal. I've been banned from PayPal for, uh, over a year now, at least, uh, you know, like they came for sovereign tech and that's what they took away. Um, so, you know, like, I knew that they were doing this sort of thing anyway. Um, again, why did they do it to me? I don't know why, because a, I espouse zero hate speech other than for the abstract concept that is government. And I certainly make fun of plenty of politicians, but I thought we were allowed to do that ever since that one guy got locked away for calling John Adams, uh, his, uh, his, 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 his divine rotundity or whatever. <laughs> Not that I need permission from anybody to do anything, but, um, and, and again, I make, I never, ever, ever make calls for violence. I'm like Pavel Durov. Um, so why it happened to me? I'm not entirely sure, but it happened anyway. Fortunately, I just got banned and I didn't get a $2,500 fine because I certainly couldn't afford that. I mean that now, while a couple of weeks ago, this you know, PayPal came out and said this whole $2,500 fine thing against misinformation. Uh, oh no, 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 we, we never intended for that. Blah, blah. I mean, that, that's what they were saying is that they did not intend for that. And that it was like a mistake that it was even on this document. Well, what happened on October 27th, 2022? Here we go. Reading from, uh, uh, Vignesh, uh, Karen Nundi. Apologize if I didn't get your name right, man. You're solid fucking journalist. Really? You're putting out the good news. Uh, <laughs> or well, this isn't good news, but you know what I mean? Uh, but Vignesh here at watcher, watcher.guru PayPal reinstates. Here's the headline. PayPal reinstates $2,500 fine for misinformation. Let me read it. PayPal is now back with its $2,500 penalty for each time the company believes that its users post misinformation. The payment giant added terms and conditions that gave them permission to withdraw $2,500 from user accounts. The instances of remittance include situations where the company believes that the user promoted quote unquote misinformation. This also includes the instances where users post 
publish and send, quote, messages, content, or materials that, in PayPal's sole discretion, A, are harmful, obscene, harassing, or objectionable, end quote. PayPal could also, or here's a subheader, PayPal could also withdraw funds from linked accounts. Let's talk about that. The new prohibited speech policy is set to start on November 3rd, so just a couple days. With regard to what is said during payment and, uh, to what is said during payment and expressive content or items for which you request payment through PayPal, PayPal might effectively accuse you of violating its acceptable use policy. It can also automatically debit from user accounts and linked accounts. PayPal closed down the accounts of the Free Speech Union two weeks ago, along with the accounts of the London-based organization's advocate, Toby Young. After receiving a slew of criticism, the payment giant decided to reinstate uh, the accounts. Quote, the last two weeks have been a nightmare as I've uh, scrabbled to try to stop the Daily Skeptic and Free Speech Union from going under. PayPal software was embedded in all our payment systems, so the sudden closure of our accounts was an existential threat, end quote. Uh, Toby Young stated the terms and conditions were included two weeks ago by the payment platform. However, the company stated that it was a mistake. This is what we said when we talked about it two weeks ago, PayPal said it was a mistake to include it in the wrong section of the terms. As of now, PayPal has brought back the policy. The company also re uh, received a disagreement from Elon Musk and David Marcus, uh, where Marcus served as the president of the company and Musk was a co-founder. Uh, Marcus mentioned in the tweet that PayPal's new acceptable use policy goes against everything he believes in. Elon Musk also replied to the tweet stating that he agrees with this view. Now, I don't care what the fuck Elon Musk thinks about anything, but um, I mean, certainly it's it, it has weight when a previous president of the fucking company says, what the hell are you doing? What have you become? So my point two weeks ago, when this, uh, supposed according to PayPal themselves, when this mistake came out, my point was a, that was not a mistake because I know in my own experience dealing with multi-million dollar companies, how many, like how many filters something goes through to make sure that shit like that cannot be a mistake. It can't, you cannot get that stuff out there by mistake. There's no way somebody in the C-suite, somebody at the, you know, I hate using this phrasing, but whatever, somebody at the top had to put that in. And my point was B that it doesn't matter if they enacted or not. There are people in the C-suite at the top who think this way who want this sort of thing. That's bad enough in itself. That's reason enough in itself. To stop using a fucking service because that person has some degree of decision-making power, whether, you know, it's, it's a above board on the level or coming from underneath the desk. That person has decision power at some level has influence somewhere. And well, apparently whoever thought this was a good idea has now won because that mistake apparently wasn't a mistake. Now I tried to figure out like when they say linked accounts, I'm guessing they mean linked accounts to your bank account, you know, like your bank account that's attached or your credit card that's attached to PayPal or whatever. Uh, because I was a little worried when they said linked accounts, it's like, wait, do you mean like, do you mean like a person's PayPal business account? Or do you mean like accounts 
that maybe you've done business with, with other people. And that could be an even more terrifying prospect that basically anybody that you get, you know, money from in some form, uh, you know, that like you could be linked to them in that way. I don't think it means that, but like, you know, there could be mass bannings or mass fines, um, you know, if that happens now, what I do find interesting was, I mean, and I don't, I don't necessarily give a shit about the free speech union. Okay. What I do find interesting is that, so they got banned, but then they got reinstated, but I'm guessing they're going to get fined. So now I'm wondering if PayPal basically says, okay, so we have this mandate from on high that we have to put a stop to the spread of whatever they deem is misinformation. And again, I don't know who on PayPal you know, has the credentials. No one really does, but who has the credentials to decide what's truth and what's not, you know, I don't know that I had looked to PayPal for as the ultimate arbiters of truth, but okay. Um, but I I'm wondering if, because basically everybody engages in misinformation or what would be termed quote unquote misinformation, because everybody engages in that PayPal would have to ban everybody. And so, Instead, they're like, well, we won't ban your account because we want to keep taking money from you. So we're just going to fine you $2,500 instead of banning accounts. I wonder, I'm not going to do it because fuck these assholes. Okay. I wonder if I could open up an account now and everything would be fine. But they're just like, yeah, but we're just going to take $2,500 off the top. I mean, look, folks, <laughs> I, I've tried, you know, they're, they're early on in Sovereign Tech's history. Like the first, you know, three, three to five years. Um, I spent a lot of time like saying, look, we, I know where these companies are going. Stop using them. Stop using them. Or don't use this app because they didn't do security right. Or don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've kind of gotten out of that, that mindset of saying, you know, stop doing this. Stop doing that. You can't, cause you know what you really you, like, you can't really convince people. You can't like tell people, you know, as much as an authority or credentials that you may have and however right you may be. You know, you can't lead a horse to water, right? You, I mean, like, it, it's just, it's just not going to happen. So I've kind of fallen out of that, mo that mindset, that mode of saying, don't use this. It's unethical. Don't do blah, blah, blah. But folks, as much as I am out of that mindset, holy shit, stop using PayPal for the love of Satan. Stop it. This is crazy when a company like PayPal of all things, you know, it's not like, not that I'd even trust scientific American, but I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not like a company that has uh, a bunch of scientists, you know, on the board or anything where they can actually like say, no, I can explain to you why this theory is correct and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, no, who the fuck are these people that they say, no, what's misinformation and what's not, where are they getting that? Where are they getting that data from? Who are their experts? Do we know? Let's have transparency as your user. Let's have that transparency. You're never going to get it. Stop using this company. What are the alternatives? Well, the easy answer of course is crypto. However, I know there are lots of people who have to deal in dollars and that doesn't always work out so well for them. Crypto has saved many a life from myself to sex workers, to all kinds of people in the, you know, Liberty movement, uh, to people who are, you know, in infotainment and, and entertainment as well. You know, all of the above. Okay. Crypto is a wonderful, 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 wonderful thing. And it is an inevitability because of this, like, man, <laughs> I'm amazed. 
like that PayPal. In fact, why did PayPal go above 20K? Probably because of this announcement from PayPal. And good. But that said, there are people who really have to deal with banks and whatever else, and I want to be empathetic towards that. I am one of you. Okay. Um, I mean, a fantastic alternative, if you are in the United States, a fantastic alternative is Cash App, which has people in charge that have been on top of the crypto space for a good long while. Uh, They work with the Lightning Network. I mean, like they're more than just cash. They also do a really solid job of crypto implementation, far better than anything PayPal slash Venmo, same company, far better than PayPal slash Venmo is doing. So that's an alternative to look at. I mean, Sovereign Tech has had a cash app forever. I've never once gotten any kind of threatening notice from them. I've never gotten any anything brash from them. Nothing. I mean, you just, you know, just look for the, the cash symbol Sovereign Tech and you can donate right to the show. And it's never been a problem. And I've had plenty of people do it over the years. I've had people even donate with Bitcoin using the cash app. It's fucking awesome. They are not a sponsor. I would... Ultimately, frankly, I'd be honored if they were okay, because they are doing so much right out there, but yes, should we get to crypto? Yeah, of course, of course, no argument from me on that. Okay. But I mean, you know, some people do need to move money this fast, uh, and that can be converted in such and such a way or whatever, you know, like again, that they need just a little bit more of the legacy system in their workflow. And that's the only thing I can really recommend outside of the U.S., uh, I'm not really an expert, so I can't exactly say what to do. And I, and, I, and I, you know, I apologize just because I know how many listeners I have who are outside of the United States. In fact, most of my listeners are outside of the United States. A huge chunk of them are in the United States, but but there's a massive chunk that are not. Um, so regardless, what's the message here? Welcome to Dystopia, folks. Have a good time. I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. Hey, baby, I know, I know you are tired of Gmail. You have had enough. Well, I have a solution for you. What I want you to do is you go to Fastmail, okay? It's fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That's the URL you can use. You're going to get a discount with that. You are going to love this. This is email for email's sake. This company does nothing more. Just email and they do it right. All the latest security technologies you want to log into your account with your YubiKey, you can do that. Fastmail has your hookup. Very inexpensive plans. I want you to check it out. You go to fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That'll get you the hookup and it's an honor to have them as a part of Sovereign Tech. Woo! Let's get back to the show. Shall we play a game? Woo! All right. Let's see if we can calm down. Just just a little bit. <laughs> let's talk some video games, baby. Uh, you know, it, we, we live in a very interesting time as far as video games go because we're really starting to see the and, and of course, I've been talking about this for years, but we're really seeing the fracturing of different types of gamers. You know, for like the past 30 years, um, almost 40, but for the past 30 years, you basically you've had console gamers and you've had PC gamers. And that was really your division. Now, those two ha- really don't have much difference. Like most of what comes out for a console, uh, even some exclusives when it comes to PlayStation or Xbox, uh, but not so much Nintendo, uh, you know, like, like most things that normally would have been exclusive to consoles come out for PC now. 
So there's not really a clear delineation other than, you know, how how well does does a game uh, play and, you know, like how smoothly does it play and look on whatever screen you happen to have. That That's really where there's any kind of differentiator. Um, even though I still think, you know, the PC Master Race is a thing, it's more about, for me, the PC Master Race is more about gamers that can play such a broad swath of games, not just within genre, but with throughout time is in on a PC. You can play games from 40 years ago, uh, quite literally as to where on console, not so much, but now really the, the division has changed. The division is now more about, you know, there's like gamers who are more into mobile games. There are gamers who are cloud gamers as in that, you know, they only use cloud services. There are gamers who are, you know, like I think Nintendo has really become like its own gaming community. Uh, you could argue it's always been, but no, now really like the switch is a very unique animal that appeals to very specific types. I think, uh, even though, you know, it's one of the best selling consoles in history. Um, and you know, like, and then you have retro gamers who are all about, you know, collecting the classic consoles, um, or doing a raspberry Pi setup or, you know, emulators and, and all of that. Uh, so you really have, you have very, very, you have separate markets. Like, I think it's a lie, uh, and a misattribution of like, when you say, when somebody says to you, oh, well, the video game industry, uh, does more money than the movie industry. You know, the video game in industry does 80 billion a year or whatever, you know, whatever the stupid numbers are. Um, uh, th like that's a lie because you can't, you really can't wrap up all video games in one umbrella because there are people who come like, because they'd be saying that all games make money the same way. Right. Which used to be true. Yeah. You paid 50 bucks for a game. That was the end of the story. That's not true today. A lot of games are free to play, you know? I mean, but then, you know, there's, there's IAPs, there's in-app purchases or whatever. Um, but that's very different than the $50, you know, that you used to pay flat. Um, or, you know, there's games that are, you know, again, emulated and perhaps downloaded completely for free and good for you if you do that. Uh, I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways that games make money today. A cloud subscription service is a completely different way for a game to make money. So, you like that number doesn't mean shit about how much, you know, money the video game industry makes because it's really video game industries. And this is a really clear point, you know, to understand or a really fine point, I should say, to understand. Now, uh, something that's growing is, you know, I mean, mobile gaming has been growing for a while. I would say that it's a bad thing, you know, uh, but <laughs> whatever people love their candy crush. Um, and what's started lately are actual handheld devices, much like the Nintendo switch that are all about playing, you know, either via the cloud or playing mobile games specifically just with better controls than what's on a touchscreen. Now we talked about maybe, th maybe a month ago, we talked about the Logitech G cloud, which was just one of these devices that looks like a Nintendo switch, but it's actually an Android device and it's designed specifically with fairly lower specs just to play, you know, cloud-based services like, um, you know, like game pass, you know, Xbox game pass, uh, or, you know, GeForce now or whatever. Okay. So the company that tries to do everything, 
has now stepped in, thrown their hat into the ring to, to get into that kind of space as well. That being Razor, R-A-Z-E-R. Um, of course, Razor is kind of the Apple, uh, Apple, yeah, the Apple of the PC world, you know, of the Windows world. Um, frankly, I wish Razor would just finally bite the damn bullet and develop their own Linux OS, similar to what Steam has done, um, and have their hardware go there. But for whatever reason, that's not going to happen. However, while Android is technically Linux, I guess they're kind of doing it, but they are going all in on Android gaming. And it looks like they're trying to do something a bit more hybrid and it's called the razor edge, which yeah, great punny name, right? The razor's edge. Yeah. Um, we don't know when this is going to come out. It'll probably be 2023, but we're not sure they have not given a firm release date only that they're going to give more details at CES, but just the details that we do have right now. Uh, cause we also don't know pricing. The details we do have right now is that it's going to run Android 12, um, Snapdragon, uh, G3X gen one gaming platform. So that's your, you know, that's your, uh, single chip. Okay, great. Uh, and it has the Qualcomm Adreno GPU, eight gig of Ram, 128 gig of storage, which that blows away the Logitech, uh, G cloud. It is almost a seven inch screen with 6.8 inches and it is 1080p. It is an AMOLED at 144, uh, Hertz. So, okay. So that's, that's a high-end screen, uh, two-way speakers with Verizon adaptive sound, whatever the fuck that is. And microphones built in, um, Wi-Fi 6E, Bluetooth 5.2. Um, and then it has Verizon 5G is, and it has MM wave, uh, 5,000 milliamp battery. Okay, great. And we don't know much about like it's battery life or anything like, like those are the details that we just don't have. So to talk about it just on its face, um, this would be a great machine for ultimately for emulation. In my opinion, that's what I think makes it great. Now, clearly I think what razor is going for here is all about that 5g, that constant connectivity. Um, that's not, I don't think 5g in most areas is going to do well enough for you to do game service or to do like cloud services. Okay. So that's a little bit of a fail there, but clearly that's, that's what they're looking at here because that's its differentiator, say from the steam deck, which it looks a lot like the steam deck and from the Logitech G cloud is it has always on, you know, always connected capability. Um, and that's, that's an interesting thing, you know, to consider. I mean, considering the speed of Nintendo's online capabilities, frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if whatever the next switch is, um, or if there is even just a new model of switch, you know, for the present generation, if it had some kind of cellular connectivity built into it, do I really care for that? No, no, I'd, I'd rather not. Um, and it actually for like full on video console, video games, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Why? Because, you know, you, you're going to blow through your data bill, uh, or your, your data allotment on your, you know, uh, cellular plan in no time, just downloading a goddamn game. You know, some games are 20, 30 gig. You know, that that's going to blow away most people's, uh, you know, uh, monthly plans. So I, I mean, like I get what they're trying to do here, but at the same time, like who, not many people can really afford constant 5g data connectivity for, especially for online gaming. So I think that that's a, that's a little weird. And I wonder if that's going to end up being kind of limited. Um, ultimately, depending upon what the price of this thing is, if this thing is $200 and there's almost no way a razor product is going to cost that because they always come at a premium. 
If this were $200, I would say this is the best emulation device money could buy. If it were $200, because Android is awesome for, you know, classic console emulation. It is truly awesome. You know, what's available there, like Duck Station and um, Lemuroid. I mean, there's so many great options available for Android for that. Uh, I think then it'd be a winner. And if, and if it had great battery life, you could make an argument for it against, say, the Steam Deck or even the Switch. But it's going to have to be those things, low price and phenomenal battery life to really compete in this space. Ultimately, I'm not excited about this really at all. Again, unless it hits those two markers. And, you know, there's an argument, I mean, my argument still is go ahead and just, just get an 8-bit dough uh, Pro 2 controller and, you know, get the little, um, the little adapter that lets you, it's like 15 bucks that lets you, uh, lets it hold your smartphone. It works really well. Um, and most smartphones, you know, will handle the job of what this thing's going to do. That's the route I would go because that will only end up costing you about $40 as compared to 200. And really this device is probably going to run like six or seven, but that's because Razer has like its cultish fans who will pay anything, you know, whatever. Um, but that's the route I would go. I'm not saying I want your phone to do everything. Okay. I'm just saying there are cheaper ways to do this. You might have an old phone that you could throw emulators on and then get an 8 bit controller. I'm not saying you need to, you can't have a dedicated device. You can. I'm just saying there are far better ways to go about it than I think what they're looking at doing, unless the price is insanely low and the battery life is insanely high. That's what this thing needs, I think, to even matter. But we'll keep an eye on it, and we'll talk about it more when we talk games on this show, as we often do. But I'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech and, you know, some more fun. Journey into the far reaches of aqua space. Attention, security breach. Brace for impact. Seal out of doors, rig for collision. Launch countermeasures. Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment Inc. and Universal Television comes a journey into the future and beneath the sea. Roy Scheider stars in Sequest DSV. You can watch Sequest by downloading it from your favorite torrent site or getting it on glorious DVD. For beneath the surface lies the future. Album of the week. It is time for album of the week. One of my favorite parts of every episode of Sovereign Tech. And I mean that because usually I'm not complaining and I actually get to like just talk about cool shit. And this is shit I never thought that I'd be talking about again. Um, one of my favorite bands, uh, classic hard rock act, one of my favorite bands of all time, and I mean this, uh, is Giant. Now, a lot of people will really remember Giant for probably one song, sadly, even though they have so many other great songs. But they had an album come out in 1989 called Last of the Runaways, uh, which had a track, um, you know, a ballad called I'll See You in My Dreams. It's a beautiful, haunting song. Uh, I mean, it's really great. Great ballad. Uh, but they, I mean, they they just have a ton more amazing fucking songs and they bring in a bit of like a wild west kind of flair to their, you know, melodic metal slash hard rock, uh, sound. And 
you know, they're mainly known. They did their two main albums, which was Last of the Runaways in 89 and then Time to Burn, which was an even better album in 1991, uh, led by none other than Dan Huff. Uh, and actually his brother is the drummer, David Huff. But Dan Huff was kind of the main lead singer and songwriter and guitarist and just one of the greatest musical talents, frankly, that I think humanity has ever had. Um, unfortunately, he has moved on to the country uh, music world. Um, and has had a ton of hits in that world. Uh, but Giant has, from time to time, attempted a comeback, as it were. Uh, like in 2001, they had the album Three. Then nine years later, they had the album Promised Land, which Promised Land didn't really have Dan Huff too involved. And out of nowhere, in 2022, they came out with an album called Shifting Time. Um, now, while Promised Land and Three were kind of departures in sound, kind of departures in sound, a little, little softer, kind of going a little bit of a different direction, um, Shifting Time is getting right back to the sound from Last of the Runaways and Time to Burn. Like, this is an album that could easily sat in 1990. Uh, and it, and it's, it's brilliant. The sad part is Dan Huff isn't really involved. Um, even though, like, their lead singer that they got is uh, Kent Hilly from Perfect Plan, who's a tremendous vocalist. You know, uh, uh, Mike uh, Brignardello is still involved, you know, still still doing guitars. Um, and, you know, he's been around for quite some time. Uh, David Huff, of course, drumming is still there. Uh, I guess Dan Huff did play some of the lead guitar on Never Die Young. But look, this album is track for track. You've got 13 tracks and they're all white hot. Um, I mean, great rockers, some great ballads involved. This is a dynamite nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 album. Like really. And they even bring in some of that, like it's kind of that, that what, what I want to call like a wild West sound. They even bring in some of that, um, in, in some of the songs here, which I was so amazed because no one else does that, or at least not anymore. You know, you kind of got it from like, uh, you know, wanted dead or alive by Bon Jovi, or you'd get it in some, uh, some like Tesla songs or, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of Mr. Big or something, but you rarely get that. And they brought that right back in with this album, uh, shifting time. So anyway, obviously I implore you to go back and listen to last of the runaways and time to burn by giant and then come right into this album shifting time. And I mean, you're in for one hell of a ride. This is, this is eighties hard rock at its best. Is it album of the year? No. Could have been if there was not much else or, you know, if some other albums hadn't come out this year, like ones we've covered, like Victorious's album, Chess Kane's latest album and so on. But this is right in line with that. And it's fucking beautiful. I just love that 12 years later, we're getting another giant album. And not only that, but it's a giant album that sounds like it could have came out 30 years ago. Uh, just phenomenal. You're, again, you're in Never Die Young, which has Dan Heff on guitars. Probably the best song on there, though the opener, Let Our Love Win, awesome. There's not a bad song here. This is a track-for-track track album. So go ahead and check it out. Uh, giant Shifting Time from 2022. And like I said, you're in for a hell of a ride. We'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. From Big Finish Productions, Blake 7, the classic audio adventures. I'm taking Liberator in on manual. We'll be in teleport range in two minutes. What the hell was that? Information. Liberator has been attacked. You don't say. Put up the force wall. Confirm. Message to all ground commanders. Initiate the final phase. 
Let's crush these rebels once and for all. My name is Avon. Kerr Avon. Kerr Avon? Our hostage arrives. But you may be unnecessary. As a hostage, it's nice to be superfluous. You can go to Blake7.com to find more of the new adventures of one of science fiction's greatest masterpieces. Blake7 at Blake7.com The Ancient and the Strange. It is time for The Ancient and the Strange. And as we have been doing uh, over the past few episodes, um, I once again want to pull from the mighty pool, and it is mighty, of the Sovereign Technica newsletter to lay down, again, a lot of foundation and groundwork for what we're eventually going to get into. Okay, we're building up a very uh, specific lens and dare I say mindset. And with that in mind, uh, what I want to read this time, I'm actually skipping ahead a few issues, even though there are other things I want to talk about, including a write-up that I did a couple issues back about spirituality and video games, because it's an incredibly important conversation. Um, I want to get to this one because I think it's pertinent with so many of the subjects we've been getting into lately, including people in reality, very much treating a lot of tech companies like gods or like a religion, um, among other things. And I think it's important and it doesn't get stressed enough. Just what exactly the individual's place is in the universe. And that's what we're going to get into here. Uh, it's titled surpassing that thing called God. And well, why don't we just go ahead and get into it and let the piece explain itself. Here we go from issue 11 of the Sovereign Technica newsletter and link is in the show notes surpassing that thing called God. I prefer Klingon beliefs. I suppose your gods aren't as cryptic as ours. Our gods are dead. Ancient Klingon warriors slew them a millennia ago. They were more trouble than they were worth. Can you ever get enough of those Klingons? They're more smartly written than I think many Star Trek slash sci-fi fans give them credit for. No wonder Jadzia Dax fell in love with Worf. Well, I'm sure the rough sex helped too. See D Space Nine episode looking for Parmak in all the wrong places. And the point is taken. Gods are more trouble than they're worth. Fortunately, they don't exist. And even if they did, we're meant to supersede them. What's that you say? Is this some kind of pithy Nietzschean notion that God is dead? No, not at all. I'm quoting from the history of my own people, the Jews. In Judaism, while much like Christianity, many verses are interpreted in a million different ways, a very big deal is made out of that little verse in Genesis about the creation of humanity in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. 
While we can debate about the translation of dominion in that verse all day long, that's not the point of the verse I'm getting to. Note, the idea of humanity having dominion over other life forms on earth is not about dominance or an I can do whatever I want to the otters attitude. Dominion, in this case, is about having creative energies over one's surroundings, not some kind of twisted ownership over those surroundings. The latter leads to perverse, universe-threatening concepts like dominion theology, which I always, more accurately, call entitlement theology. And there's nothing worse than pansies who think they're entitled to things. Am I right, not my fellow conservatives? End note. The point of the verse is more about the in thy image part. You see, what God's image really means is not that the hypothetical God looks like us, sorry Mormons, having arms and legs and maybe or maybe not an opposable thumb, but that we can engage in the act of creation independently like him. We can have children produce golems. What? Yes, calm down. And if Kabbalistic texts are to be believed, the righteous can even create entire worlds. Really, rabbis claim that. So blatantly, according to Jewish mystical tradition, you have the powers of God. But what's this I said about superseding God? Right. Now that you understand what in thy image actually means, it's story time. And we're going straight to that arguably most holy of texts in Orthodox Judaism and bane to conformity, the Talmud. One of the most imaginative stories in Talmudic literature is the description of the controversy between Rabbi Eliezer and most of his disciples, headed by Rabbi Joshua, on questions of ritual purity and pollution. The dispute was aroused by a seemingly marginal question, namely whether a pottery utensil could be defined as a broken vessel, one that is unpollutable. When the fellow rabbis refused to accept Rabbi Eliezer's view, Eliezer called on the forces of nature to prove his theory correct, crying, Let the carob tree be uprooted from its place. Let the water change the direction of its flow. To this, Rabbi Joshua replied, You cannot cite evidence from the carob. Then, Rabbi Eliezer appealed to heaven to prove that his ruling should be accepted, and a divine voice was heard saying, what do you want of my son Eliezer, whose rulings are universally accepted? Still, Rabbi Joshua was firm in his opinion, saying, Torah is no longer in heaven. God has given it to men, and it is they who will decide this matter. Most of the scholars then ruled against Rabbi Eliezer. This story, which readily illustrates the Talmudic view that man is a creator, wasn't truly concluded until several generations later when it was reported that a Jewish sage asked Elijah the prophet what God had said on that occasion. And Elijah replied, God smiled and said, My sons have prevailed over me. Yes, my sons have prevailed. Go ahead and read that again. God said with a smile, My sons have prevailed over me. Simpler terms, the creation superseded the creator. Powerful stuff. Notice that God was pleased by this and not angry, unlike, say, the Tower of Babel incident where he seemed to be scared shitless, really. Without getting into the question of what this God character really is, a subject for another time, the very idea that Judaism espouses that humans can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with this character and prevail should be mind-blowing to anyone that gives the Abrahamic faith some kind of credence. This brings us to the ultimate point of this writing. 
I have regularly said that the four most powerful statements that only consist of three words are these. One, I love you. Two, let me help. Three, tell me more. Four, thou art God. In case you hadn't guessed, number four is my purpose here, though one through three are essential parts of being number four, mind you. Thou art God. Or, if you're of the more New Testament persuasion, the kingdom of God is within you. Yes, you're God, and so is everyone else. Based on most people's conception of God, that's a paradoxical statement and begs the question, how can every individual be God? Do we all make up God in some pantheistic way? No, and perhaps more accurately, the phrase should be, thou art a God. Adding in the a kills the paradox. Thinking of yourself as anything less than the master of the universe is the road to serfdom and undesired slavery, though. Even without any mystical bent, though I'm certainly arguing for mysticism, you, the individual, ultimately being the master of your own fate, and we always are, makes you a god or goddess. While there is much more to say on this subject, I want to end with this. Don't allow things outside of yourself to become gods over you. Whether it's the state, your job, the market. Oh, you better believe we're going to talk about that one soon because it's a fucking problem. Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Pfizer, or take your pick of the thing, brand, or organization that you slowly started paying more and more fealty to without consciously realizing it. I mean, come on, you're practically confessing your deepest, darkest sins to the tech giants like Google and Apple every day as you type on the keyboard and they collect that data and you're okay with it. Hell, you're even sending them photos and... Not kidding, Google literally has a chief spirituality officer. Priests would have flogged themselves for hours to get access to some of those photos in the confession booth. The only faith you practice and belong to is your own individualistic spiritual expression. Do not give your attention and adulation to anything or anyone that hasn't earned it completely from you. Do not put any gods before you. Thou art God. And there you have it from issue 11 of the Sovereign Technica newsletter. Uh, really honored. Actually, just had someone sign up for the newsletter for an entire year for the, the, the paid version, which includes, uh, includes much of my uh, new creative short stories or, you know, creative work, short stories. Uh, anyway, that piece on surpassing that thing called God a lot to chew on there. Uh, and I am going to leave you to it. I don't have a lot of postscript, uh, you know, to really discuss about it, but always remember if you have questions, in fact, in the sovereign technica newsletter, there's an email where you can send questions to, uh, and you're also welcome to get in touch with me through the various means that continue to be available. Of course, the best way is to be a patron patreon.com slash sovereign tech. And we discuss this kind of stuff almost every Wednesday during the Wednesday Q and a, when it comes in with your very questions. So don't hesitate to send those and I'll be right back with some more sovereign tech. Woo. television event ever as you join the crew of Battlestar Galactica. Right here, you creepy crawling. I have led the entire human race to ruin.
The last of mankind, fighting for life in a hostile galaxy. Most of us are dead. Alone, with only one hope, Battlestar Galactica and her crew. There is no other destination. Commander Adama, Captain Apollo, the intrepid Starbuck, and the dazzling Athena, searching for a new and peaceful world. We may as well live for today. We might not have many left. Let the attack begin. A new age of high adventure, Battlestar Galactica. Golden Stallion doing whatever he wants to do. The Climax It is time for The Climax. And what we have, you know, I get to talk about whatever I want to talk about. And until uh, Rob Freebeard and I get together to do some uh, uh, TIE Fighter Renegades, um, I want to, just because we're at about... Well, no, we're actually past the halfway mark, but I've watched up to just a little bit past the halfway mark of Star Wars and or. And I want to give you just some quick thoughts uh, on, you know, what I think about it. And because if you haven't jumped on this yet, oh, baby, (laughs) do I think you need to jump on this? Uh, I'll admit, like as late with a lot of new television shows, I actually find that they really can't. Well, first off, their seasons are significantly shorter than what I am used to. You know, I'm used to 22 to 28 episode seasons for, for a television show. Uh, and that's really the way that it should be. Um, but you know, now we get, we're lucky. Sometimes we only get six. Sometimes we get 12. In this case, I think we're getting 12 with Andor. Um, I'm not going to really get into too much spoiler territory here, but just be warned. Um, but I've noticed lately that a lot of shows, honestly, and boy, it's even worse when there's only six episodes, um, you know, say to a season, it takes about six episodes for a show to get up and running. Uh, which is also very different for me. I'm so used to television shows where the pilot is, you know, the, the first episode is usually fucking brilliant and amazing. Um, and everything just kind of picks up, you know, from there. Um, but television doesn't seem to get made that way anymore. I don't know if it's because the writers suck or what, um, or, you know, if there's like a lack of creativity in general, people are looking at their smartphones too much. I'm not sure exactly what the problem is, uh, but it's there. And because, you know, it, all right, hold on. Let me, let me just sidetrack quick. Okay. While we're talking about, I know we're going to talk about Andor. Don't worry. Let me sidetrack for a minute. It's so fucking funny for how long in my life I have heard how many times, holy shit, will Babylon five pick up? I'm like four episodes deep and this show is fucking boring, blah, blah, blah. But man, I don't know a show that isn't like boring for the first four episodes these days. You know what I'm saying? But everybody, oh yeah, no, yeah, I'll wait. Rings of power. I'll wait until episode five for it to get good. Or I'll wait for until episode six for it to get good. That's fine. But oh no, fuck Babylon five. Oh no, it's fucking old. No, I, I don't know what, whatever it is with people. Anyway, 
and or is not a case of bad writing, nor is it really a case, in my opinion, of it being boring at all. Uh, now, Rob, Ellen, and I have all been like every week, we'll watch a couple episodes together and everything. Um, but even when we watched just the first three, we were just like, holy fuck, like that was dynamite. Um, this really is a great show. And, and, you know, where's the writing coming from? Well, it's Tony Gilroy, who I've had reservations about previously because of, you know, some bullshit that he called out with, uh, with, you know, cause he came in to try and fix that, which I don't think needed fixing that being star Wars rogue one. Of course, Andor is a prequel show to that very movie and a prequel show. In fact, that is getting multiple seasons, which is fine because I believe it takes place five years before the events of rogue one. Um, and so you have Tony Gilroy in charge here. Now here's the thing. So they're essentially making like a spy show. Like it, it, it's kind of, it's star Wars spy fi ultimately. Uh, and with a mix of like heist and mission impossible in there, all of which it does very, very well. Uh, this is a great thing in my opinion to have Tony Gilroy involved in why, because we're talking about the guy that wrote, you know, most of the Bourne films, you know, the Jason Bourne movies. And most of those, most, at least the original trilogy are phenomenal. Um, so it's not hard to believe why these are so good. And to, and you do see the great writing from Tony Gilroy in it. Uh, I am, I am nothing less than impressed with this show. The look of the show is phenomenal. Um, the way that they've created with the corporate sector authority, the way that they've effectively created an organization even though we haven't really seen much of them past, you know, episode two or three, uh, they effectively created an organization that both, you know, fans of, you know, in traditional Star Wars, you have your rebels fans, you know, fans of the rebellion, and then you have your fans of the empire. I am in the latter. I'm, you know, a fan of the galactic empire. Uh, but, but like the corporates, the corporate sector authority, like we, Imperials and, and, and rebels can both agree. Both, both fandoms can, can just hate, just hate these guys. And you can tell, and it's so great. <laughs> I love it. it. It's total. Fuck the, fuck the police in star Wars. It's phenomenal. Um, anyway, I've enjoyed that, but the thing I've probably enjoyed the most, you know, with this show, uh, well, I, definitely enjoying the action with Mon Mothma because this is something really that I've felt Star Wars has needed for a long time. Why? Because she, we all know she ends up becoming the leader of the rebel Alliance. So she is the, uh, ancillary. Would that be the word? She, she is the antithesis. Let's, let's go with that. She is the antithesis of Emperor Palpatine. And yet we know nothing about her, you know? And so we really, needed like to explore this character more. Now, certainly Timothy Zahn and others would do some pretty good work with that in the old expanded universe. Um, but this show is doing a dynamite job of fleshing out that character. And again, the actress playing her being able to come back from deleted scenes from episode three, you know, she's supposed to have a little arc in there and that all got torn out and now twice getting to come back, um, you know, and have that, what I would almost argue is restitution for getting to play this character. Finally, uh, I think is just a wonderful success story. And, and I'm not going to give too much credit to Disney for anything, but like credit to them for, for bringing her in because she's fantastic. Uh, and like the, just the writing for the character of Mon Mothma, Mon Mothma is just, just top notch. 
so you're finally getting to see this character who is in her own ways just as uh, devious, but, you know, in a, in a more ethical or, well, what you would call good guy, I guess we'll say, uh, in, in a more good guy way, but just as devious, really. And, you know, so many machinations or as many machinations really as, as Emperor Palpatine has. So that's really working out very well. Um, and we do, I believe we do know that there's going to be at least a second season, probably more because this, again, this is this show by the end of the first season, in my opinion, might actually, it won't, it won't have better moments overall, but it might be a better show than even the Mandalorian. Like it's that good. Um, and a big part of it is, well, I'll get to it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place on this, but I'm just telling you, you need to fucking watch this. It is, it is dynamite, uh, you know, to, to explore, to really explore. I mean, Star Wars Rebels, the show, the cartoon did a great job of exploring the, you know, the beginnings of the Rebel Alliance and you even got Mon Mothma in that. Uh, but now like this is really exploring the beginnings, like the very, very beginnings where only three or four people have any fucking clue, you know, of, of, of what's going on and, and how this is all working out. And you get great explorations of the ISB, the Imperial Security Bureau. Uh, the Imperials in this are, in my opinion, I'd like they they live up to what I would expect. Uh, and we've gotten some other great cameos really in the show overall. Anyway, I was going to say, uh, I do think. You know, while it won't, it doesn't have, I don't think it'll have as many great moments as the Mandalorian had. I think overall as a total package, it really could end up being the better show. Uh, but that's, that's saying a lot about Andor, but that's also, in my opinion, not snuffing the Mandalorian in any way, because we all know how damn good that show is. Um, so anyway, um, I, yeah, I'm absolutely loving this thing. Uh, it works on pretty much every level. Uh, I have, I can barely even think of, of, of complaints about it. The best thing, um, is this is a show and it's been a long time since I've encountered a show like this. This is a show that is eminently quotable, meaning you can pull quotes from it. In fact, there are quotes that you can apply to your life and you should, you know, like <laughs> if you don't control it, don't carry it, man. Did, did, did smartphones just get ripped on right there? Oh, just there's so many things it's dynamite what gets laid out in this and again like the show every episode can kind of take on a little bit of a different theme i was very impressed with one of the you know mid-season episodes that felt totally mission impossible old school mission impossible uh and man did i love that uh so there's a lot to enjoy here now granted in the last couple episodes of the season this whole thing could fall apart and it could be a shit show. And that was my warning at the beginning that, you know, you, you really like with modern television, you really have to wait to see, you know, whether or not something is actually that damn good. But if they can stick the landing, wow, do they have a winner on their hands with this show? Uh, and I, I mean, I gotta say like Diego Luna as Cassian Andor, uh, they did a great job of making him actually look a few years younger than he did in Rogue One, which let's remember that in and of itself came out in 2016. Uh, so he was, you know, like seven or eight years, or he is now like seven or eight years older than he was in Rogue One. And now he also has to play five years younger than that. Um, he's doing a great job of that, but that he has a very exotic appeal, you know, like uh, he's, a, he is a certain magic on the screen and that is 
that is also rare today. Most actors just seem to like kind of fit a certain character mold. This guy is someone who stands out, you know, like a Chuck Heston, just again, with a little more of a, a you know, exotic flair to him. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm loving everything I'm seeing. Uh, the, the, the characters are great. Even the new ones that we never met before, uh, I think are delivering. The show is genuinely funny, uh, at times. And in fact, I can say, I believe it was episode seven that I was watching of it. There was a point during it where I almost cried. The acting and the writing was that good that like I was welling up, man, that's a show for you. So if you have not watched Andor yet, because you're like, oh, fuck Star Wars, deuces, bitches, give this one a shot. Okay. I'm sure you at least like the back half of Rogue One. Well, consider this the front, the true front half to Rogue One, and you're in for a treat. So jump on it. Star Wars Andor. We, Rob and I, uh, you know, and anyone else that wants to join, we will have, um, you know, a full series review on an episode of TIE Fighter Renegades coming up. But for now, man. This is a doozy right here. At least the at least the episodes that have been released thus far. So check it out, Star Wars Andor. And I am going to wrap up this episode of Sovereign Tech with that. See, something actually good you get to walk away from. <laughs> Not just thou art God. <laughs> anyway, uh, we will wrap this one up. And I will see all of you next week. Unless you're a Sovereign Tech patron, patreon.com slash Sovereign Tech. Then you see me more than once a week. Or should I say hear me more than once a week? Otherwise, I will see all of you on the other side.